Chapter 2 of Book 7 of Les Miserables, Volume 5 by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Karen. Les Miserables, Volume 5 by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book 7 chapter two the obscurities which a revelation can contain marius was quite upset the sort of estrangement which he had always felt toward the man beside whom he had seen cosette was now explained to him there was something enigmatic about that person of which his instinct had warned him this enigma was the most hideous of disgraces the galleys this Monsieur Fauchelevent was the convict Jean Valjean. To abruptly find such a secret in the midst of one's happiness resembles the discovery of a scorpion in a nest of turtle doves. Was the happiness of Marius and Cosette therefore condemned to such a neighborhood? Was this an accomplished fact? Did the acceptance of that man form a part of the marriage now consummated? Was there nothing to be done? Had Marius wedded the convict as well? In vain may one be crowned with light and joy. In vain may one taste the grand purple hour of life. Happy love. Such shocks would force even the archangel in his ecstasy, even the demigod in his glory, to shudder. As is always the case in change of view of this nature, Marius asked himself whether he had nothing with which to reproach himself. Had he been wanting in divination? Had he been wanting in prudence? Had he involuntarily dulled his wits? A little, perhaps. Had he entered upon this love affair which had ended in his marriage to Cosette, without taking sufficient precautions to throw light upon the surroundings? He admitted, it is thus, by a series of successive admissions of ourselves, in regard to ourselves, that life amends us, little by little. He admitted the chimerical and visionary side of his nature, a sort of internal cloud, peculiar to many organizations, and which in paroxysms of passion and sorrow dilates as the temperature of the soul changes, and invades the entire man, to such a degree as to render him nothing more than a conscience bathed in a mist. We have more than once indicated this characteristic element of Marius's individuality. He recalled that in the intoxication of his love in the Rue Plumet, during those six or seven ecstatic weeks, he had not even spoken to Cosette of that drama in the Gorbeau Havel, where the victim had taken up such a singular line of silence during the struggle and the ensuing flight. How had it happened that he had not mentioned this to Cosette? Yet it was so near and so terrible. How had it come to pass that he had not even named the Thénardier, and particularly on the day when he encountered Eponine. He now found it almost difficult to explain his silence of that time. Nevertheless, he could account for it. He recalled his benumbed state, his intoxication with Cosette, love absorbing everything, that catching away of each other into the ideal, and perhaps also like the imperceptible quantity of reason mingled with his violent and charming state of the soul, a vague, dull instinct impelling him to conceal and abolish in his memory that redoubtable adventure, 
contact with which he dreaded, in which he did not wish to play any part, his agency in which he had kept secret, and in which he could be neither narrator nor witness without being an accuser. Moreover, these few weeks had been a flash of lightning. There had been no time for anything except love. In short, having weighed everything, turned everything over in his mind, examined everything, whatever might have been the consequences if he had told Cosette about the Gorbeau ambush. Even if he had discovered that Jean Valjean was a convict, would that have changed him, Marius? Would that have changed her, Cosette? Would he have drawn back? Would he have adored her any the less? Would he have refrained from marrying her? No. Then there was nothing to regret, nothing with which he need reproach himself. All was well. There is a deity for those drunken men who are called lovers. Marius Blind had followed the path in which he would have chosen had he been in full possession of his sight. Love had bandaged his eyes in order to lead him whither? To paradise. But this paradise was henceforth complicated with an infernal accompaniment. Marius's ancient estrangement towards this man, towards this Fauchelevent, who had turned into Jean Valjean, was at present mingled with horror. In this horror that estate, there was some pity, and even a certain surprise. This thief, this thief guilty of a second offense, had restored that deposit. And what a deposit! Six hundred thousand francs! He alone was in the secret of that deposit. He might have kept it all. He had restored it all. Moreover, he had himself redealed his situation. Nothing forced him to this. If anyone learned who he was, it was through himself. In this avowal there was something more than acceptance of humiliation. There was acceptance of peril. For a condemned man, a mask is not a mask. It is a shelter. A false name is security, and he had rejected that false name. He, the galley slave, might have hidden himself forever in an honest family. He had withstood this temptation. And with what motive? Through a conscientious scruple. He himself explained this with the irresistible accents of truth. In short, whatever this Jean Valjean might be, he was undoubtedly a conscience which was awakening. There existed some mysterious rehabilitation which had begun, and to all appearances scruples had for a long time already controlled this man. Such fits of justice and goodness are not characteristic of vulgar natures. An awakening of conscience is grandeur of soul. Jean Valjean was sincere. This sincerity, visible, palpable, irrefragable, evident from the very grief that it had caused him, rendered inquiries useless and conferred authority and all that the man had said. Here, for Marius, there was a strange reversal of situations. What breathed from Monsieur Fauchelevent? Distrust. What did Jean Valjean inspire? Confidence. In the mysterious balance of this Jean Valjean, which the pensive Marius struck, he admitted the active principle, he admitted the passive principle, and he tried to reach a balance. But all this went on as in a storm. Marius, while endeavoring to form a clear idea of this man, and while pursuing Jean Valjean, so to speak, in the depths of his thought, lost him and found him again in a fatal mist. This deposit honestly restored the probity of the confession. These were good. This produced a lightning of the cloud. Then the cloud became black once more. 
Troubled as were Marius's memories, a shadow of them returned to him. After all, what was that adventure in the Jondrette attic? Why had that man taken to flight on the arrival of the police, instead of entering a complaint? Here Marius found the answer. Because that man was a fugitive from justice who had broken his ban. Another question. Why had that man come to the barricade? For Marius now once more distinctly beheld that recollection which had reappeared in his emotions, like sympathetic ink at the application of heat. This man had been in the barricade. He had not fought there. What had he come there for? In the presence of this question a spectre sprang up and replied, Javert. Marius recalled perfectly now that funereal sight of Jean Valjean dragging the pinion Javert out of the barricade, and he still heard behind the corner of the little rue Montetour that frightful pistol shot. Obviously there was hatred between that police spy and the galley slave. The one was in the other's way. Jean Valjean had gone to the barricade for the purpose of revenging himself. He had arrived late. He probably knew that Javert was a prisoner there. The Corsican Vendetta had penetrated certain lower strata and had become the law there. It is so simple that it does not astonish souls which are but half turned towards good, and those hearts are so constituted that a criminal, who is in the path of repentance, may be scrupulous in the matter of theft and unscrupulous in the matter of vengeance. Jean Valjean had killed Javert. At least that seemed to be evident. This was the final question, to be sure, but to this there was no reply. This question Marius felt like pincers. How had it come to pass that Jean Valjean's existence had elbowed that of Cosette for so long a period? What melancholy sport of providence was that which had placed that child in contact with that man? Are there then chains for two which are forged on high? And does God take pleasure in coupling the angel with a demon? So a crime and an innocence can be roommates in the mysterious galleys of wretchedness. In that defiling of condemned persons which is called human destiny, can two brows pass side by side, the one ingenuous, the other formidable, the one all bathed in the divine whiteness of dawn, the other forever blemished by the flash of eternal lightning? Who could have arranged that inexplicable pairing off? In what manner, in consequence of what prodigy, had any community of life been established between the celestial little creature and that old criminal? Who could have bound the lamb to the wolf, and what was still more incomprehensible, have attached the wolf to the lamb? For the wolf loved the lamb, for the fierce creature adored the feeble one. For during the space of nine years the angel had had the monster as her point of support. Cosette's childhood and girlhood, her advent in the daylight, her virginal growth towards life and light, had been sheltered by that hideous devotion. Here questions exfoliated, so to speak, into innumerable enigmas. Abysses yawned at the bottom of abysses. And Marius could no longer bend over Jean Valjean without becoming dizzy. What was this man precipice? The old symbols of Genesis are eternal. In human society such it now exists, and until a broader day shall effect a change in it, there will always be two men, the one superior, the other subterranean. The one, which is according to good, is Abel. The other, which is according to evil, is Cain. What was this tender Cain? What was this ruffian religiously absorbed in the adoration of a virgin, watching over her, 
rearing her, guarding her, dignifying her and enveloping her, impure as he was himself, with purity. What was that cesspool which had venerated that innocence, to such a point as not to leave upon it a single spot? What was this Jean Valjean educating Cosette? What was this figure of the shadows, which had for its only object the preservation of the rising of a star from every shadow and from every cloud? That was Jean Valjean's secret. That was also God's secret. In the presence of this double secret, Marius recoiled. The one, in some sort, reassured him as to the other. God was as visible in this affair as was Jean Valjean. God has his instruments. He makes use of the tools which he wills. He is not responsible to men. Do we know how God sets about the work? Jean Valjean had labored over Cosette. He had, to some extent, made that soul. That was incontestable. Well, what then? The workman was horrible, but the work was admirable. God produces his miracles as seems good to him. He had constructed that charming Cosette, and he had employed Jean Valjean. It had pleased him to choose this strange collaborator for himself. What account have we to demand of him? Is this the first time that the dung-heap has aided the spring to create the rose? Marius made himself these replies, and declared to himself that they were good. He had not dared to press Jean Valjean on all the points which we have just indicated, but he did not confess to himself that he did not dare to do it. He adored Cosette. He possessed Cosette. Cosette was splendidly pure. That was sufficient for him. What enlightenment did he need? Cosette was a light. Does light require enlightenment? He had everything. What more could he desire? All. Is not that enough? Jean Valjean's personal affairs did not concern him. And bending over the fatal shadow of that man, he clung fast, convulsively, to the solemn declaration of that unhappy wretch. I am nothing to Cosette. Ten years ago I did not know that she was in existence. Jean Valjean was a passer-by. He had said so himself. Well, he had passed. Whatever he was, his part was finished. Henceforth there remained Marius to fulfill the part of Providence to Cosette. Cosette had sought this azure in a person like herself, in her lover, her husband, her celestial mate. Cosette, as she took her flight, winged and transfigured, left behind her on the earth her hideous and empty chrysalis, Jean Valjean. In whatever circle of ideas Marius revolved, he always returned to a certain horror for Jean Valjean. A sacred horror, perhaps, for as we have just pointed out, he felt a quid divinum in that man. But do what he could, and seek what extenuation he would, he was certainly forced to fall back on this. The man was a convict. That is to say, a being who is not even a place in the social ladder, since he is lower than the very lowest rung. After the very last of men comes a convict. The convict is no longer, so to speak, in the semblance of the living. The law has deprived him of the entire quantity of humanity of which it can deprive a man. Marius, on penal questions, still held to the inexorable system, though he was a democrat, and he entertained all the ideas of the law on the subjects of those whom the law strikes. He had not yet accomplished all progress, we admit. He had not yet come to distinguish between that which is written by man and that which is written by God, between law and right. 
He had not examined and weighed the right which man takes to dispose of the irrevocable and the irreparable. He was not shocked by the word vindicate. He found it quite simple that certain breaches of the written law should be followed by eternal suffering, and he accepted as the process of civilization social damnation. He still stood at this point, though safe to advance infallibly later on, since his nature was good and at bottom wholly formed of latent progress. In this stage of his ideas, Jean Valjean appeared to him hideous and repulsive. He was a man reproved. He was the convict. That word was for him like the sound of the trump in the day of judgment. And after having reflected upon Jean Valjean for a long time, his final gesture had been to turn away his head, vade retro. Marius, if we must recognize and even insist upon the fate, while interrogating Jean Valjean to such a point that Jean Valjean has said, You are confessing me, had not nevertheless put to him two or three decisive questions. It was not that they had not presented themselves to his mind, but that he had been afraid of them. The Jondrette attic, the barricade, Javert. Who knows where these revelations would have stopped? Jean Valjean did not seem like a man who would draw back, and who knows whether Marius, after having urged him on, would not have himself desired to hold him back. Has it not happened to all of us, in certain supreme conjunctures, to stop our ears, in order that we may not hear the reply, after we've asked a question? It is especially when one loves, that one gives way to these exhibitions of cowardice. It is not wise to question sinister situations to the last point, particularly when the indissoluble side of our life is fatally intermingled with them. What a terrible light might have proceeded from the despairing explanations of Jean Valjean, and who knows whether that hideous glare would not have darted forth as far as Cosette. Who knows whether a sort of infernal glow would not have lingered behind it on the brow of that angel. The spattering of a lightning flash is of the thunder also. Fatality has points of juncture where innocence itself is stamped with crime by the gloomy law of the reflections which give color. The purest figures may forever preserve the reflection of a horrible association. Rightly or wrongly, Marius had been afraid. He already knew too much. He sought to dull his senses rather than to gain further light. In dismay, he bore off Cosette in his arms and shut his eyes to Jean Valjean. That man was the night the living and horrible night. How should he dare to seek the bottom of it? It is a terrible thing to interrogate the shadow. Who knows what its reply will be? The dawn may be blackened forever by it. In this state of mind, the thought that the man would henceforth come into any contact whatever with Cosette was a heart-rending perplexity to Marius. He now almost reproached himself for not having put these formidable questions, before which he had recoiled, and from which an implacable and definitive decision might have sprung. He felt that he was too good, too gentle, too weak, if we must say the word. This weakness had led him to an imprudent concession. He had allowed himself to be touched. He had been in the wrong. He ought to have simply and purely rejected Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean played the part of fire, and that is what he should have done, and have freed his house from that man. He was vexed with himself. He was angry with that whirlwind of emotions which had deafened, blinded, and carried him away. He was displeased with himself. What was he to do now? Jean Valjean's visits were profoundly repugnant to him. 
What was the use in having that man in his house? What did the man want? Here he became dismayed. He did not wish to dig down. He did not wish to penetrate deeply. He did not wish to sound himself. He had promised. He had allowed himself to be drawn into a promise. Jean Valjean held his promise. One must keep one's word, even to a convict. Above all, to a convict. Still, his first duty was to Cosette. In short, he was carried away by the repugnance which dominated him. Marius turned over all this confusion of ideas in his mind, passing from one to the other and moved by all of them. Hence arose a profound trouble. It was not easy for him to hide this trouble from Cosette, but love is a talent, and Marius succeeded in doing it. However, without any apparent object, he questioned Cosette, who was as candid as a dove is white, and who suspected nothing. He talked of her childhood and her youth, and he became more and more convinced that that convict had been everything good, paternal, and respectable that a man can be towards Cosette. All that Marius had caught a glimpse of and had surmised was real. That sinister nettle had loved and protected that lily. End of Book 7, Chapter 2 Recorded by Karen Glick